right, this is Arab Talk on KPOO San Francisco 89.5 FM. I'm your host, Jamal Dejani. My co-host, Jessica Nam, is traveling. Our topic today is about confronting racism and Islamophobia in the United States. Islamophobia has long been a part of the problem of racism in the United States, and it has only gotten worse since the election of Donald Trump and since his call to ban Muslims and his attacks on immigrants and minorities. This is not to say that these issues have never existed before, but it seems that under Trump, the bigots are crawling out of the woodwork. They feel empowered and emboldened. A prime recent example is that repulsive tweet by actress Roseanne Barr just recently. I'm sure many of our listeners have seen it or uh, at least read about it. And she managed in one short tweet to attack Muslims and African-Americans to compare people of color to apes. This is unacceptable in America. And our guest today is an expert on this subject. He is Dr. Hatem Bazian. He's a co-founder and professor of Islamic law and theology at Zaytuna College. He is also a senior lecturer in the departments of Near Eastern and Asian American and Asian Diaspora Studies at the University of California, Berkeley. Welcome to Arab Talk, uh, Dr. Bazian. Thank you, Jamal, for having me. It's a pleasure. So... As America is becoming a majority minority nation, one would assume that tolerance, right, becomes prevalent in this country, but it seems that the opposite is happening. What went wrong? Well, I think we're talking about possibly the backlash to the changing diversity in the country. And I think uh, people mistakenly think the backlash is only recently as a direct result of uh, Trump's election. Uh, but I uh, want to remind uh, the listener uh, that immediately after the 1964 Civil Rights Act, President Johnson said that he lost the South, uh, which means that the Southern Democrats uh, shifted their political allegiance and became Republican and far more in terms of uh, heavily conservative Republicans on race, race issues, and on integration. And the process of responding and uh, opposing Civil Rights Act, Immigration Rights Act, Voting Rights Act begins uh, really in 1964-65 and that period. The first challenge to the uh, affirmative action takes place in 1969 uh, with the New York uh, Teachers Union that challenges affirmative action, meaning to give access to African Americans and minorities to have employment and jobs begins at that point. And then we get to get all the various states that attempt to make it difficult on people to register to vote, uh, to make it difficult for them to have their access to civil rights. And the challenges continues to uh, take place from 1964 on. So again, uh, this backlash has been in the making almost for 50 years. Remind here for the state of California, we have the Baki decision against affirmative action in 1978, uh, which was a challenge to the admission process at the UC system that went all the way to the Supreme Court and began to roll back on really the very firm processes of attempting to deal with almost 200 years plus of discrimination. So this is, again, what we're seeing today is a result of that political wave that begins in 1964 in opposition to the civil rights movement, the anti-Vietnam uh, war movement, and now we have Trump in the White House. I think the spark uh, uh, erupts after the election of Obama in 2008. And in here you have the mixing between Islamophobia and uh, anti-black racism that's been present in this country. You remember when Obama was running, people wanted to accuse him as being a closet Muslim. And I think for many people, they really wanted to use the N-word on him, mm -hmm. but they were comfortable in using the M-word as a signpost for the N-word. And that's, you get the uh, Tea Party, the birther movement, and it's not surprising that the leader of the birther movement, Trump, is now sitting in the White House, uh, demonized uh, Obama, 
And again, this is not a defense of Obama policies, both domestic and international. I have written about him joining the dark side with his uh, drone attacks and so on, his extra surveillance. But setting that aside, that on the racial issue, uh, the uh, stoking of white resentment of having the first African-American reaching the White House, uh, that rallied many individuals across many parts of the country to come out out of the woodwork or out of their cave mm-hmm. and come out wearing, uh, some of them wearing their own hoods, uh, white hoods, in terms of uh, the what we call the alt-right, which is the cleaner version of actually the new KKK, new and improved, uh, that right now feel empowered mm-hmm. because they have uh, their own individual in the White House and some of those around him in the White House are actually come, they're not even uh, shy about expressing their affinity, if not actual uh, membership in terms of Gorka being a member of actually the um, skinhead and neo-Nazi groups. So that's essentially, we need to look at it at a 50-year period period Mm. of this reaction that results in Trump becoming in the White House. Well, some people refer to or say that Muslim is the new black now, which I tend to not agree with it because blacks are still under Yeah, I don't like these terminologies. You know, know, but but do you agree to a certain or disagree to a certain extent that Islamophobia is more a form of races than religious intolerance? Oh, yeah. Uh, Well, again, in our work on Islamophobia, because in terms of the uh, research that we do, Muslims are racialized. And I think in here people need to understand that race and racism, you have racial markers. So there's racial markers relative to skin, racial markers relative to language, ethnicity, and religion. So when we speak about uh, Islamophobia, it's Muslims being racialized because of their religious identity, which again, interestingly enough, just going through a longer historical period, uh, Muslims and Jews were racialized in Europe during the Inquisition period. That's right. So in essence, uh, I have a, a piece that says, does Europe have an Inquisition problem? Because the same type of racial markers that were put in place to try to develop or at- arrive at a purely European, which was a Christian white that did not mix with Muslims and Jews. So the concept of purity of blood that begins to be at the foundation of what we call the modern articulation of racial theory uh, actually originate at the period of the expulsion of Muslims and Jews from Europe and a whole set of criteria that begins to actually uh, try to construct governing the bodies and space of Muslims and Jews. For example, what Muslims and Jews were uh, wearing or not wearing, their religious practices, their acts of cleansing themselves, including also uh, eating and uh, drinking. So, for example, during the Inquisition, you had to consume pork in public Mm -hmm. as a way to demonstrate that you no longer are holding up the kosher and the halal. So in southern Spain, you'll find that the cuisine in southern Spain is heavily laced with pork pie products. So Pamela Geller that uses uh, Islamophobia and pushes Islamophobia today is actually has she have learned her lessons from the inquisitors uh, in Spain because she's again attacking the halal food industry as a way to point out that we are caring to the Muslims. Again, she's taking a page from the inquisitors and I think she, it will be behoove her possibly to go and visit the Inquisition Museum to learn the liquidity or the fluidity of these restrictions that were existed around the 1492 that are being reintroduced today in here or in Europe or other places. Well, most Islamophobes, uh, unfortunately, are ignorant about history in general, or they kind of tend well, to skew it. Well, I don't think it. ignorance assumes that they are they not. I think there they're are. There, we have to distinguish between Islamo, Islamophobes who are strategic. Mm-hmm. So Pamela, I don't think she's ignorant. She's strategic in mining history in order to actually push forth a racialization of the Muslims versus, let's say, some individuals who basically sees something on the news mm-hmm. and acts upon it. That person possibly falls under the category of ignorance. So Pamela Geller is not ignorant. Stephen Emerson is not ignorant. Daniel Pipes is not ignorant. Frank Gaffney is not ignorant. These are people that are making money mm-hmm. and utilizing, mobilizing Islamophobia for strategic purposes, both domestic and international. Talking about the news, you've mentioned the news. What role does the media have oh, sh- playing in, in, in this dissemination of mis- or misrepresenting basically Islam yeah. and whipping a frenzy, basically? Sure in this country against Muslims. I think in here, uh, there's a group of researchers that we work with in the UK, David Miller and his group, where actually they put first the responsibility on the state. 
the state have selected the enemy. And again, after the, after the end of the Cold War and the uh, Red Scare, now we have the Green Scare. So the state and its apparatus and the elites have picked on Muslims as being the new enemy. And the media, again, uh, referencing Chomsky, their role is to manufacture consent. They actually run and reflect the priorities of the elite. And it's not surprising that 92% of our media today is corporate media. So there's a confluence between the political elite uh, targeting Muslims as the new enemy because it mobilizes the military-industrial complex. You continue to outlay about uh, uh, close to $700 billion in military expenditure. You have an open-ended war. So it's actually a very convenient way. So I think the state is the first and primary agent for producing Islamophobia, and then the media reflecting the priority of the elites, manufacturing the consents of those governed, and begins to run it. So maybe we could look at Fox and CNN and think that there is a, a spectrum of difference. I think this difference is very narrow when it comes of representation and how Muslims are posited. Fox might bring uh, Pamela Geller and others to speak about Islam, but CNN, up to the most recent past, was bringing Inshad Manji and Ayan Hirsi Ali to actually speak about Muslims and posit the Muslims. So you could see the spectrum is very narrow. You're listening to Arab Talk on KPOO San Francisco, 89.5 FM, and I also want to uh, welcome our viewers on, on Facebook, uh, which goes to hundreds of thousands of people across the globe. Our guest today uh, for the entire hour is Dr. Hatem Bazian. And Dr. Hatem Bazian is the co-founder and professor of Islamic law and theology at Zaytuna College. Uh, one thing I forgot to mention that also in addition to all your credits, uh, in spring 2009, uh, Dr. Hatem Bazian founded at uh, UC Berkeley the Islamophobia Research and, and Documentation Project at the Center of, for Race and Gender, a research unit dedicated to the systematic study of othering Islam and Muslims. So you are the right guest for the right topic uh, today. So there is a fear in this country. I mean, I talk to, and like yourself, to many Muslims all over, and people are concerned. I mean, before... It was like, yeah, maybe this is this is a cloud that's mm -hmm. going to go away sure. soon, and it's been going on and intensifying since 9/11. And people gave attributed the attacks to 9/11, yeah. and they thought, well, it will be over soon. Now Trump comes, more attacks. Yeah. So, I titled the show as confronting Islamophobia. How do we do that? Well, uh, again, in, in thinking of Islamophobia, Islamophobia intensifies during election campaigns, not as a direct result of terrorist attacks. Uh, so contrary to popular opinion, and this is again research in a number of countries, the United States, uh, France, Austria, Netherlands, Sweden, uh, Islamophobia intensifies as a result of a political campaigns, one. Second, it actually intensifies when a right-wing or a center-right political party that is out of office uses Islamophobia and targeting immigrants uh, using Islamophobia as a way to try to gain power at the ballot box. So understanding this, uh, meaning that part of the Islamophobia work has to focus on electoral strategy. And I think in here, uh, electoral strategy that would have a progressive uh, uh, political agenda for immigrants, for refugees, for religious rights and religious minorities in such a way that we actually craft this new uh, political agenda. And I think we need to be calling for a new civil rights movement, both domestically and then on a transnational level, a justice-based movement that would push back against these right-wing parties that have been discredited since Second World War. If you think of, let's say, uh, uh, Marie Le Pen in France. Mm -hmm. uh, Marie Le Pen, her party is a neo-Nazi party. Her right. father uh, is, you know, you talk about the, the, the rate of sickness. This guy is such a sick puppy, he actually collects Nazi memorabilia. And the French government actually sent him to jail because of that. So she shifted from focusing on Jewish population as the enemy to focusing on Muslims because she saw the viability 
of an electoral strategy focusing on Muslim uh, immigrants. And as such, their strategy was to try to use Islamophobia as a way to gain seats of power. And in the last election, she almost registered close to uh, 38% of the electorate votes in France. So this is a neo-Nazi party. Same thing, the independent party in the, uh, in the UK is a neo-Nazi party, it's in origin. Welders uh, uh, in the Netherlands, it's a neo-Nazi party. Uh, in Germany, uh, Bagira also is a party that is a neo-Nazi party. So what you're finding is that these neo-Nazi parties that have been discredited uh, uh, since the Second World War have found a new, I say horse, but maybe we could say they found a new camel in Europe to ride, which is the Islamophobic camel, in order to come back into parliaments and come back into seats of power, positing themselves that they're defending Western civilization. Now the flip the flip side from this, and this is the, the, the argument, in France in particular, during the Second World War, the French government, which is the Vichy government, was cooperating with the Nazis, That's right. was handing out the Jewish populations to the Nazis. Who was actually helping saving the Jewish population or participate in Jewish population is the Muslims in France. Algerians in, and North Africans. Especially the uh, imam of the Grand Mosque in uh, France, uh, uh, who actually gave the Jewish uh, member, Jewish uh, citizen who came, gave him ID cards that they're Muslims and hid them under the mosque. The numbers again vary from 700 to 1400 individuals, possibly more or less. And one of the most famous singers at the time in France, who was a Jewish person, came to uh, the mosque. And the imam gave him a ID card that he's a Muslim, but he knew that the Germans was after him. So he directed two of the staff people from the mosque to go to the graveyard and actually erase one of the headstones and write this Jewish singer's father's name on the headstone to say that he is Muslim. So when the German arrested him, he said, no, I'm a Muslim and my father is buried in the cemetery. So the Germans went and checked on the cemetery to see that his father and that's how he was released. Until 1973, the singer was always saying that he was saved by the Muslims. So the Muslims in France in Second World War were the ones that were representing what we call Western civilization and values, and the Fiji French government was representing not the, the what you call liberal Western values, but representing Nazi values. Mm. And I think we need to challenge these individuals that attempt to construct this type of narrative. Well, you're absolutely right. However, I go, I, I go back to what's, <coughs> what's happening now. I mean, you have Donald Trump in the White House. Yeah. His national security advisor, someone who, who we thought... John Bolton. John Bolton, that he's, he's gone or somewhere, you yeah. know. And now he's back, not only that he's back, but he recently picked Fred Flights from the, uh, the anti-Islam head group, uh, Splinter. Headed by Frank Gaffney as well. Yes. So. And, 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 and these appointments... They just go, I don't know, under the radar or, or they receive the blessing well, of some the of government. These, some of these appointments in the White House do not, require, be, do not require hearings. But I don't hear the voices saying, uh, hey, wait a minute, you're I bringing us a, a, a basically no, a hate-mongerer. That's the problem, and let me deal with the issue in terms of what I call polite Islamophobia and also the notions of what you call latent Islamophobia and manifest Islamophobia. Mm -hmm. The Democrats in general, uh, have not been that good in confronting Islamophobia. Again, if you remember, and during the debate between Clinton and Trump, uh, Hillary Clinton uh, framing of the Muslims, their only good use is to actually protect us. Mm. And therefore, we basically are part of a security understanding. So while Trump considers us to be a security threat, she, uh, Clinton herself framed us as a security asset. But more broadly speaking, both Democrats and Republicans have framed the war on terrorism in a continuous way to focus on Muslims as the archetypal person to be securitized, to be surveilled. And as such, you don't see that push. So there is that polite Islamophobia, while at this point they're using Muslims as a poster child to attack Trump. Right. But this is only a poster child that possibly to rally a certain base to oppose Trump, but not as a fundamental base value to say that 
what is taking place relative to targeting Muslims, both domestically and globally, is fundamentally wrong. And what we need is to rethink and reshape our understanding in a domestic on a domestic level that has implication on the international level. So again, they want to hug you, but that hug is basically almost a 10 foot away hug only for a particular narrow political purposes. And I think we need to challenge both the sharp edge Islamophobia, which I rather deal with it up front, versus the polite Islamophobia, which actually tends to operate among some of those, you know, who pretend or at least uh, use you or utilize you for a particular type of political campaigning themselves without actually going the next step to actually say that the Muslims are participant in all affairs of civil society as well as both domestically and internationally. And I don't think we are there right now. And I think that's the push that needs to take place for Muslims who are advocating for themselves, but also their allies that want to embrace and work with Muslims on issues of significance domestically and internationally. You talked about how uh, the Imam of the Grand Mosque in France uh, helped uh, the Jews during the Nazi occupation of France. Uh, and definitely there are um, many outspoken Jews in this country who have been, you know, like organizations like Jewish Voice for Peace. No, absolutely. Uh, we just had a protest, cause. if not now, this past week. However, uh, you know, there are extremists and Zionist ex- extremists basically in this country who mm-hmm. use the issue or <clears throat> the issue of the occupation of Israel on Palestine or people who are basically defending the Palestinian cause to also fan the flames of Islamophobia. There is a connection well, between again, the two. Let me say this way. In our research on the funding for the Islamophobia industry, in the last report that we did, we showed that uh, close to $205 million have been spent by the Islamophobia industry to demonize Muslims. The bulk of that, of those resources, the bulk of funding is coming from pro-Israel sources Mm -hmm. uh, domestically. Some of the biggest contributors, uh, Adelson, Sheldon Adelson from uh, Arizona, uh, from uh, Las Vegas, he's a major contributor to this. This past election, 2016 election, you have uh, Mercer, who put $2 million to actually demonize Muslims and use to create ads that targeted different parts of the country, especially among white voters, in order to tell the election toward Trump. You have another, which is the uh, uh, the heirs to the Ustalader uh, companies, likewise, but a tremendous amount of resources for the 2016 election. In the 2008 election, we have $17 million that's spent by the Clarion Fund, which is managed by a group that's also uh, is located in settlements in Israel. At the time, they distributed 28 million copies of a documentary uh, obsession in swing states and trying to influence the election. So in here, my argument is that uh, Israel have lost the moral argument, the moral ethical arguments, and the only way right now they continue to try to posit themselves as of critical importance is by fanning the flames of Islamophobia and hitching Israel's wagon into the Islamophobic wagon in order for them to continue to have support and consolidate that support by demonizing and pushing Muslims out of civil society. I think they're mistaken. They're wrong in their strategy because, again, when you fan the flames of racism and discrimination and you get the alt-right or the new and improved KKK out on the streets, I say they're equal opportunity. Maybe today they'll target Muslims, but it's very, you could see it from their rhetoric, you see it from their language, you could see it from Trump himself that is behind every Islamophobe, there is a very well-established anti-Semite that is ready to jump on the opportunity to try to get the conspiracy of the government out of our, out of the burden that supposedly they have constructed. So again, the pro-Israel forces, especially the right wing of it, have seen and developed its strategy around Islamophobia, both in here as well as in Europe. And I think this is what we need to account for, both financially as well as rhetorically. And that's where you get, you know, Pamela Geller bus ads, Mm -hmm. uh, which says in a war between the civilized and savage support, the civilized support Israel. That's a distinct, clear framing of using Islamophobia as a way to consolidate U.S. domestic support for Israel. They're wrong on principle, and I think in the end they would lose this battle because what they're fanning for, they're calling for the extreme right-wing elements of the American white society, which actually don't uh, have no, uh, uh, what you call, favorable position toward Muslims or other minorities, including Jews themselves. And you've been getting, actually, you know, a lot of flack 
because of your position on Palestine and your position on basically exposing these is these Islamophobes uh, and um, on um, I think April 17 right, yes. you facilitated an event at UC Berkeley where you teach with uh, Hanin Zoubi who is a member of the Israeli Knesset she's mm. a Palestinian member of the uh, Israeli Knesset and Zionist students called for the university to take disciplinary action against you for hosting her yeah, even though she's a representative of Israel, yeah. even though she's Palestinian, but she's well, still she's a the r- she's the wrong representative. She's she's, she's <laughs> again Israel- like her representation, but there has been a vicious attack on True. on you. I mean, this is not the first time, and also on on many academics on different campuses, and you're one of them. <coughs> so there is sure. also somehow this is connected, these these attacks against basically academic freedom. Well, again, if you think about who is constructing the attacks, you have Canvas Watch, uh, you have uh, uh, Front Page Magazine, uh, you have the David Horowitz uh, where he puts out the, this uh, uh, campaign of the uh, 100 most dangerous professors in America. Uh, you have uh, the Daniel Pipes, you have the Stephen Emerson uh, uh, investigative project on terrorism. What you have is this cluster or hub of trying to attack anyone that actually uh, challenges the basic narrative of how Israel is to be seen and to be considered within the United States and the campuses in particular. Now, why the focus in campuses is very important. Uh, in 1992, we started the SJP, Students for Justice in Palestine at UC Berkeley. Now, SJP is almost in 200 plus campuses around the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, the strategy of SJP, uh, again, why it was needed, uh, SJP was born after the Gulf War, where uh, Palestinians from uh, abroad were no longer able to come to the United States, or if they wanted to come, uh, financial resources were not there as a result of the destruction that was visited on the Gulf. Many Palestinians who worked in the Gulf were sent back, so their employment status and their ability to fund uh, their students into American universities was not possible. Also, there was an increasing awareness after the anti-apartheid movement success and the mobilization for the uh, against the war in Iraq. So the Students for Justice in Palestine was born to try to begin to challenge in the same way that the anti-apartheid movement challenged on co- college campuses successfully to begin that work. So the the SJB took on the PDS movement, meaning to, uh, to uh, even though the PDS uh, was launched in 2005, but SJP began to talk to uh, at an earlier stage to call for cutting aid to Israel, uh, taking Israel to task. And as such, the beginning of the mobilization took hold that the student population, with some faculty support, embraced the boycott, divestment, and sanction. Now, that have shifted the topography of the struggle. Before, we used to tell people to think about Palestine over there or to think about what's taking place in Nablus or in Khalil, in uh, Jerusalem, in Gaza. But now we shifted the paradigm that you need to think about what you're doing for Palestine where you are. Are you contributing to, to injustice or are you part of addressing and actually not wanting your resources to be taken for uh, aiding and abetting what the Israeli government is undertaking? So that shifted the paradigm in the same way that anti-apartheid movement have taken place. So the strategy uh, that resulted in really a mass transformation on college campuses was a direct that students took on the Palestine cause. And in the studies, again, not only from our side, but also from pro-Israel side, that the campuses have decisively moved into a pro-Palestinian perspective. Uh, and I say that uh, is basically you need to thank Netanyahu and Israeli government continued right-wing uh, policies that directly made the result that Israel as a product is no longer acceptable. Uh, you know, you have products, you say, mm-hmm. use this products for your health. I right. would say Israel as a product is no longer good for your health or your mental well-being because of the continued right-wing policies that demonize and attacks the Palestinians. The fir- almost four attacks on Gaza and just this past week, almost uh, uh, 62 individuals died in one day and almost 2,000 being injured. So that's where the attacks that are coming on us who have been successful in framing the struggle for the Palestinians as a social justice struggle that is not divided or indivisible from the domestic consideration to the transnational are facing the full thrust of the Israeli government strategy. So Mm -hmm. let's be sure 
This is an Israeli government strategy, and the ministry said that they allocated about $25 million to try to actually uh, challenge and to to target or to assassinate individuals who are engaged in PDS in civil society. So this attacks on myself, on Rabab Abdel Hadi, on uh, Stephen Salaita, on a number of other activists that are taking place relative to the PDS, is coming from a government that have lost all moral and ethical uh, capital, and therefore they're only, if you are unable to argue the message, then you go after the messenger. And that's basically what the strategy that is there. And, and uh, But there is also a strategy to utilize the law. Oh, absolutely. And to uh, conflict anti-Israel with well, anti-Semitism. I mean, well, this is... Anti-Israel and anti-Zionism. Zionism. And anti- so that's been the framing. And I think and, the... And, and I want to bring it to, to, to you the University of California, because in 2016, the University of California adopted a vague statement in the preamble linking anti-Zionism to anti-Semitism under pressure from Israel advocacy groups. And now we're seeing the same, you know, all these efforts to codify this definition of anti-Semitism into law in many localities. Many, Many of those have failed, but well, you know, uh, but not all. We challenged the one in Arizona. You know, the state of Arizona have passed a a bill which is still on the books mm-hmm. uh, that anyone that does business with the state of Arizona would have to sign that they are not uh, adhering or uh, participating in the PDS movement. And I would have the lecture at uh, Arizona State University, uh, where the contract that they sent me had this this uh, item on it, item 20, and I refused to sign it and challenged the uh, the law that this essentially c- uh, constituted a prior restraint on my ability to have free speech. Interesting enough, the state of the state of Arizona itself gave itself the right. It's actually boycotts cities in the, in California and other states that engages in sanctuary movement. So Mm -hmm. in here, the state of Arizona is saying that if you want to boycott a city in the the United States, you have the right, but to boycott a foreign country, you don't have that right, which is a contradiction, if anything, that we protect a foreign country, but we're not ready to protect San Francisco, LA, or or other cities that are practicing or adhering to their constitutional rights to issue political positions that reflects their values. So in the state of Arizona, the uh, Arizona State University had to uh, actually uh, pull back and I was allowed to come and give my talk on PDS at Arizona State University and without having to sign and adhere to that item 20 and I think that challenge will continue. There's a federal bill right now that is uh, making its way through Congress and Senate likewise to try to actually penalize and criminalize uh, critiquing Israel as well as participating in the PDS which for me is not a sign of strength for the pro-Israel, meaning that they know that they have lost the argument, they know that they have lost the political uh, landscape, and the only way is to use stealth intervention by the political forces in order for them to actually muzzle people. And I think because they shifted from an argument about the occupation and the argument about the Palestinians to an argument about free speech, I am very confident that is a winnable cause. And at the end of the day, Israel will lose that cause because you cannot actually muzzle people, and the more you muzzle people, the more you actually create the needed rationale for people to actually ask the fundamental question of why. And I think that's where we're reaching, so I think it's a sign of weakness rather than strength, and you can't throw money on an argument that you have lost. Where are the defenders of the Constitution? Where are the defenders of the First Amendment outside the ACLU? Well, again... The Alan Dershowitz, who claims to be... Well, Alan Dershowitz, he's been struck with Zionism and he has never recovered from it. He's he's now the the lawyer for Trump, Trump. so you could see where his values are. What's good for Israel is good for Alan Dershowitz and good for the Constitution. So we just said Alan Dershowitz... He lost it, right? So his liberal credentials have no meaning to us at, at this point. But many actually are quiet. Well, I, I, well again, know, comes, I think you know, that... I mean, I mean, the fear is is whether some of these, uh, you know, bills might slip through. I think the bills people. are going to go through. I'm not, I'm not going to say that the bills are not going to pass. They're going to pass. Mm-hmm. But the challenge is not there, that these will be taken up by in the courts. We will be challenging these bills in state after state. We will go and give our talk. We will face, you know, sanctions from the universities or colleges. We will take these cases to the court. And at the end of the day, it will reach at the Supreme Court. Does an American citizen have the right to critique a foreign government? That's basic. Does an American have the right to actually say that what is taking place 
by a foreign government that receives close to six to seven billion dollars annually from us is uh, they have that right to do or so. And I think the law is very clear that the right to boycott is a fundamental right because that was the civil rights movement. You know, the Montgomery bus boycott boycott from the civil rights movement is a settled law. So they're actually trying to re recreate a new parameters in order for them to muzzle people who are already seeing that what is taking place, Israel policies are no longer defensible. So, and therefore, because it's, they're no longer defensible, they're trying to muzzle people and uh, silence their uh, critics in uh, mass, both from the federal state as well as the university level. I think the uh, preamble that the University of California is, it's really a travesty, but it's as a result of direct political pressure that they adopted this type of engagement. And I think in here we need to bring into, into fore the role of the ADL in trying to engage. The ADL, I call it, is the defamation league. It's not the anti-defamation league. It's doesn't miss an opportunity to defame Palestinians, to defame Muslims uh, time and time again. And in here, we need to distinguish between uh, PR opportunities versus challenging and constantly uh, uh, attempting to limit the empowerment of uh, American Muslims, as well as think of it internationally. The role of the JCRC, Jewish Community Relations Council, which we have entangled with them in here in San Francisco, even on in when we dealt with the issue of Islamophobia and wanting the city to take a more proactive role in challenging Islamophobia, it was just JCRC that actually was engaging in trying to torpedo and to de to derail that effort, especially the role of Doug Khan, who was actually active in that process. And I know you were in the San Francisco Human Relations Commission at the time, and you know the inner working of what, was, what took place. Uh, the AJC, American Jewish Committee, which uh, David Harris, who has had almost an open season on Muslims in his radio show that was a radio spots that was aired on almost 1,400 different radio uh, stations, uh, constantly demonizing and uh, uh, Muslims and engaging in tarnishing their standing, including giving the uh, Carriage Award uh, to uh, some of the Islamophobes, promoting Stephen Emerson's book uh, on his uh, spots, and more importantly, uh, when uh, Keith Ellison, Congressman Keith Ellison, was running for the vice chair of the Democratic, uh, for the chairmanship of the Democratic Party. Uh, all these mainstream uh, uh, Zionist organization actually stood against him and tarnished him and labeled him as anti-Semite. So they are okay for what you call public relations engagement. Let's have, let's break our what you call have a lunch over hummus and falafel. But for sure, we're going to oppose any type of empowerment of Muslims that does not come through their gatekeepers. And I think what we need is to challenge that narrative and continue to actually expose what is taking place. So the UC Berkeley or the UC system framing comes as a direct result of that lobbying effort to create an association that Judaism and Zionism are one and the same, and then Zionism, Judaism, and Israel are one and the same. And I think both us, in terms of engaging in the Palestine issue, but also the uh, our allies from the Jewish community, Jewish Voice for Peace, uh, if not now, Tikkun Magazine and mm -hmm. others that continue to refuse, or the, uh, uh, the International Anti-Zionist Network, all these refuse this association, and this has been an ongoing debate within Jewish circle for quite some time. Yet these attacks are very taxing, uh, I mean, and you should know it firsthand. Uh, you know, we've had Dr. Rabab Abdelhadi a few times here. Yeah, she was sued, and there's another lawsuit. They well, that's part with, of the lawfare. Which you know, again, the lawfare project, yeah. uh, you know, well-funded organizations, even though, you know, when they lose, it still extracts a toll, and that's their intention, and I'm sure... Well, again, they have a strategy. Again, the strategy is, uh, I looked at it almost from the early 80s. Uh, they know that your uh, organizational capacity uh, is very limited, mm -hmm. and also the individuals actually that they're targeting, they want to create what you call an isolation. They want to isolate what they see is hardcore uh, organizers that are at the edge, and then isolate them for what you call the broader field. And as such, these lawfare strategies also part of what you call the interfaith dialogue for uh, that is targeting uh, almost a silencing effect is also to try to peel out about 20 to 30 or 40 percent of your resources. Resources, mm -hmm. And if you don't have 30 or 40 percent of resources dedicated to continue to actually expand your base and educate people, then that's a net loss for the overall struggle 
for uh, representing the Palestinian law. So that's a very strategically uh, deployed uh, approach that's been going on for quite some time. And I think this lawfare project is specifically to try to uh, engage in this. Second effect is also is to make people being untouchable. So Palestinian activists today in many parts of the country becomes the untouchables uh, in the sense that uh, uh, bureaucratic uh, upward uh, moving people, they don't want to associate. So it becomes an untouchableness, uh, in a sense, to stay away from Palestine because it's one of the surest way to torpedo your career if you're upwardly mobile. So that also creates the, the effect of creating zones of untouchableness in civil society, specifically relative to Palestinians. So a lot of this trash that gets to be thrown from lawfare and from the Ameri uh, uh, from many of the Zionists that tarnish the reputation and standing, including some of the foremost, you know, if you just think about how Edward Said was attacked constantly as a way to try to limit his influence and impact, most people try to stay what you call with the path of least resistance, meaning if they're confronted with some some controversy in there, they will opt not to touch it, not to appeal, because they don't want to go through the process of understanding what taking place. And in this sense, it does have an effect, and I think we need to be aware of these processes in terms of isolation and marginalization that is part of the strategy. Well, it's part of uh, the education, part of our topic here. We've been talking about it and trying to reach out to our community and others and make sure, you know, I mean, they have a strategy, and we should have a strategy. Sure. So in essence, how effective uh, the support from the community and others. Uh, well, I think our community still has not gotten what is needed to do the work, both for Palestine, but also in Islamophobia. Just let me give you on the Islamophobia front, and then we could go back to Palestine. Many approach the issue of Islamophobia is just like people don't know about Islam. So much of the work goes on to trying to educate people about the five pillars of Islam. And again, I am more Sensi than happy. Sensitivity training. Well, sensitivity, but it's just basically just like if we just let them know the five pillars of faith, what Muslims believe and so on, that the Islamophobia uh, issue might be resolved. And I think in here they're mistaken the Islamophobia industry and its strategy and approach with essentially just outreach effort to the general population, the general public, without understanding that you have to take on the Islamophobia industry in a very systematic and sustained way. So they confuse sensitivity, training, or outreach uh, of actually countering and confronting Islamophobia. And I think that is, that is a strategic mistake. I often uh, refer, reference it in this way. Some, the Islamophobes took their fist to your face as a Muslim, and uh, basically your, your response is that you go and get Botox or a plastic surgery because your face is not beautiful. Not the fact that the mm. Islamophobes is empowered to take their fist to your face and that civil society is watching and thinking, yeah, we think your face is not beautiful, so you need to invest in a much more plastic surgery. So I think what we need is to how to reconstitute, one is a self-awareness that I don't need a Botox or a plastic surgery to beautify myself, that I have the God-given right to be the way I am. Uh, ugly or beautiful, that's none of your business. And the second is civil society should be inter should be stepping in to prevent the, the audacity of the Islamophobes to hit you in the face or to actually to think about it because to think about it or to have the framing of it is comes as a result of society making it possible. So if uh, at the governmental level, they're constantly problematizing the Muslims, then the uh, Islamophobe in civil society feel empowered that he is being protected, that the government told him that the enemy is a Muslim, not the enemy is a KKK, or that, that, that there's more KKK attacks that took place in, uh, in the society uh, that needs to be watched, and therefore... That framing, or, or, or the enemy is the NRA, for example, with all so, the killings on in, in so, high schools and schools. So again, thinking of the problem being that it's you the problem, and therefore you go through this uh, almost a twelve-step uh, metaphorical plastic surgery engagement, uh, misplaces and misdiagnoses the problem. And that results almost a faulty strategy because we're putting resources in the wrong strategy to begin with. And so part of the process of uh, doing the research and work is to change and alter how we see what the problem is and how to define and to understand the strategy that is needed to counter it. The same relations in relations to Palestine. 
uh, people begin to, uh, to frame it, it's just a basic misunderstanding. It's a, mis it's a miscommunication issue. And if we just get together and just have a good falafel hummus gathering, we'll be able to solve it. Because at the end, we're just like, it's really uh, where uh, we could resolve our miscommunication. This is not a miscommunication. This is a settler colonial project that is dispossessing a, a, a people that is using power and might, supported by the only superpower in the world, with European countries also who sponsored and incubated uh, settler colonial Zionism. And therefore, it's not miscommunication. If you ask a Palestinian under occupation, a Palestinian inside uh, one of the cities, what's happening, they'll tell you exactly what's happening to them because it's not a miscommunication. When your house is demolished, there is no, no miscommunication problem in here. It's not, mis it's not meant understanding how Zionism is in a theoretical and is there a difference between religious Zionism and political Zionism? Is there uh, a difference between that post-1945 uh, that the world community wanted to address the injustices that took place. But Zionism as a project began much earlier than the Second World War. So again, we need to understand and define the problem itself and how to approach it in terms of a strategy that has to have many components, educational, political, as well as grassroots work in general. And again, we, we are basically facing probably the, one of the most hostile governments you know, uh, not against Muslims, but also against Palestinians. I mean, when you have... Oh, absolutely. Well, when you, you have snipers killing more than 100 unarmed Palestinians... And Nikki Haley going up to the, to the United Nations Security Council and complaining about the Palestinians. She goes complaining about so-called, according to her, Hamas lobbying missiles, 70-plus yeah. missiles into, into Well, again, Israel. the framing in here is very important, that we never think of the security of the Palestinians. It's not even an issue. It's always the framing that we need to secure the settler colonialists in the same way, again, that the settler colonialist framing is what is being advocated and pushed forth. So you never get the sense that the Palestinians who have no military, have no support, no air, no air power, uh, no heavy uh, equipment whatsoever being confronted by the fourth or fifth most powerful army with 500 nuclear warheads supported by the United States. There is no question about what the Palestinian security, what does the pa Palestinian child feels like constantly f facing bombardment on a regular basis? What is the feeling of Gaza, 1.8 million that living in a, an open prison with no n nothing coming in, nothing coming out, four hours of electricity on a daily basis? Uh, statistics vary, but you could get from 60 to 80 percent unemployment. Uh, I think just does, does a lot of the mental health issues mm -hmm. in there where over 90 percent of the kids force, face or suffer from PTSD uh, cases, stunt growth, uh, wetting the bed at age 14 or 15 for some of these uh, Palestinian kids. So none of that is being discussed. The only thing is what's good for Israel is, has to be good for everyone. And Nikki Haley, Trump and others continue to promote this. The last part of this is that Unfortunately, the Arab world is almost going the same direction, uh, whether it's in Saudi Arabia or the rest of the Gulf states or Jordan or Egypt. All of these are hastening because they're trying to locate themselves with a regional hegemony mm -hmm. and preparing themselves for a war with Iran, as if the threat on the Arab and Muslim world has been Iran. And that, again, it continues to be the, the framing that we are watching as we speak. So not only that you have a problem domestically, but you also have a problem internationally of how the Palestinian issue is being framed at this point, even among the Arab and Muslim world. Uh, we have a few minutes left. Um, you're listening to the voice of Dr. Hatem Bazian. He's the uh, co-founder and professor of Islamic law and theology at Zaytuna College. He's also a senior lecturer in the departments of Near Eastern and Asian American and Asian Diaspora Studies at the University of California, Berkeley. As an educator, are you hopeful now? Because I know at least statistically uh, there was a recent, for example, Pew uh, report uh, that says that the the support for Israel under the age of uh, 25 is now much higher. I mean, the, the support for the Palestinian cause. It's, it's changing, very changing. Been changing. So as an educator talking to young people, are you hopeful? I'm very that, hopeful. That I'm very optimistic. A, a and change very, in this attitude. Yeah, I'm hopeful and optimistic because I want to make the change possible. And this is basically part of uh, education, reaching out, both writing and contributing to the whole discourse is I'm hopeful that change is coming. I think what uh, the Israeli policies are unsustainable and also our Washington uh, 
uh, government and those who pretend to be representing the American public is not sustainable. So I'm very confident that the change is coming, but it requires for us more work, more deliberate engagement, more strategy, and continue to reach out to different parts of the society. I think uh, our work within the uh, uh, Christian uh, churches has been very, very important. Many of the Christian churches uh, on a national level, the Presbyterians and others, have already taken uh, the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement. They would withdrew their investments from companies. I think the Arab uh, community and Arab and Muslim community has been dragging its feet in the United States, and I think we need to get our organization to embrace the PDS movement as a full strategy rather than being apologetic about it, uh, which also touches on the uh, Palestinian Authority, which often actually have uh, almost uh, worked against the PDS movement at the international level in Europe and other places. So I think we need to push them more uh, on th on that front to uh, partake. I think we need to work closely with our allies from the uh, African-American community. We had many delegations that went to Palestine, uh, including delegation from the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, uh, Angela Davis and others. So their voices are very critical and important to create their relationship. And I think uh, some of the uh, framing uh, Ferguson and Gaza because when Ferguson uh, uh, protest uh, erupted and uh, the police was using tear gas, actually Gazans and Palestinians were sending uh, Fer uh, uh, Ferguson activist text messages telling them how to deal with tear gas because the same tear gas that was that's thrown on Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza, same tear gas that is being thrown at people in Ferguson and other places because the same company that supplies the Israelis, same companies that are supplying our police. So that's important work. I think the pork and San Francisco, in Berkeley, against the surveillance, Urban Shield, those are part of the puzzle that I think the, the all politics is local is very important, and I think we're making headway, both as an educator, as an organizer. I think that the future looks promising, but it requires for us to do more work and not to say, well, it's going to be good. Uh, you have to make the future that you want to see possible. And I think the person that you're waiting for to change the world is here, which is you. Just get up from the couch, get going, and make the change that you want to see. And where people can find uh, more information about Islamophobia, I know you have your center. <coughs> What's the website? Because uh, I know a lot of people would want to educate themselves and, and support also your work. Yeah, uh, IRD Project, which is IRDP Project, uh, dot com, which is our site for the Islamophobia, as well as encourage you to uh, go to my own website, hatimbazian.com, and we'll have many of the materials in there. Uh, so look forward to engaging with you and welcome all your questions and comments uh, as well. Well, I want to thank you again and again, and I'm sure we're going to see you again here. And it's you. very hard to commute over this uh, Bay Bridge. No, I have to make it back traffic, across. And you have to make it. So um, you've been listening to Arab Talk on KPO San Francisco. This is 89.5 FM.